little picture to start. Uh, I'm, I'm suspecting that in uh, a crowd this size, there's quite a lot of you who've been involved in, in helping a child uh, learn how to ride a bicycle. Um, and so maybe it's been a son or daughter, maybe it's been a niece or a nephew, maybe it's been uh, a brother or sister. Um, but there comes a point where they, they graduate from, the little, the little child graduates from the balance bike. Uh, the, the stabilizers or training wheels, if you're American, uh, come off. Uh, and they've got to learn how to pedal on two wheels uh, on their own. Uh, and it begins often with a parent, a guardian, uh, a friend, uh, grabbing them, holding on the saddle, supporting them, running along beside uh, the little child as they learn, learn to, to get, find their balance and, and get the timing right for the pedaling. Uh, and then there comes a moment, there comes a moment where you've got you to let go. You've got to let go. And at that moment when you let go, you, you say, shout words of encouragement. That's what you shout. There's a lo- bunch of things you could say, um, but you shout the most urgent and important words of encouragement. You don't say... Always be polite. Uh, remember to save your money. Uh, don't be late on your first day at work. You know, those are all good things to say, but those are not the urgent and important things that they need to hear at that moment to give them encouragement and confidence as they cycle off into the world. Uh, what do you shout? Uh, keep pedaling. Uh, don't yank the handlebars. Look where you're going. Because you want them to be confident as they head off uh, into the world uh, with hopefully confidence and freedom. Uh, on their bicycle. Well, we come to this moment now when John lets, lets his, he, he refers to the, his readers as little children, verse 19, 21, uh, little children. He sees these readers, first readers, as his spiritual children. Uh, and as he lets them go now off into the world, uh, he doesn't want them just to be confident in riding their bike. He wants them to be confident uh, in their faith, confident in their faith. He wants them to be certain Uh, about some things. And in many ways, a good summary verse, a a sentence I've pointed you to again and again and again over the past few weeks uh, has been John uh, chapter 5, verse 13, which serves as a bit of a heading for this section. Uh, These things, uh, I write to you these things uh, to those who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And even as you look through the verses, you'll, you'll see the little word know, know, K-N-O-W, know. We know, we know, we know, comes up seven times in just nine verses. And so John wants these readers to be confident. Uh, we, and it's especially obvious today, isn't it, we live in a world where there is much uncertainty. There's much uncertainty. We live in a post-Brexit UK. We live in a world that's infected uh, by the coronavirus where there's much uncertainty. And yet John is saying, look, there are some things that you can know for certain that are absolutely bankably true. And when you know them, you can have great confidence in your faith. You can have great confidence uh, in your faith. And John gives us three things. Um, I've grouped some of the news together. Uh, he gives us three things uh, that he wants us to be confident about. He wants us to, be, to have confidence to approach God in prayer. He wants us uh, to have confidence that Christ will keep us safe. And he wants us to have confidence that we know the true God, that we know the true God. And so uh, 
The first one is by far the longest, okay? So don't be panicking if I'm only finishing point one, this point on prayer. Uh, the, the, the second two will be much quicker. Okay, let's dive in then. Uh, John, as he lets these Christians go off into the world, is the words that he wants ringing in their ears as they head off to a world of uncertainty. Uh, he wants them to know uh, that they can have confidence to approach God in prayer, confidence to approach God in prayer. Verse 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked for, asked of him. Um, I, I love the little story. Um, I've probably told it before, but I do love the little story of the, this little boy uh, saying his prayers at night time. Um, he's in his jammies, he's, he's on his knees beside his bed, uh, and it's a couple of weeks before his birthday. Uh, and mum and dad, granny and granddad, are actually sitting downstairs in the living room. And so he has very deliberately left the door of his bedroom open, and he's praying out loud, as loud as he can. Uh, please bless mummy, God bless daddy, uh, bless granny and granddad, and please, 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 can I have a shiny red bike for my birthday? Um, his sister is next door in her bedroom, uh, and she says, you, you don't need to shout, God's not deaf. Uh, and he says, but granny is. <laughs> but granny is. And, and I think that little story, it's a similar little story, makes a snigger, but, but it does reflect a, a worry we have, I think. I think we're, we all struggle with prayer. I think we struggle not only to make time for it, but I think deep down, if we're really honest, we struggle to believe that God hears us. That our, that our words don't just sort of evaporate into the air or bounce off the ceiling. We struggle, to worry, we, we struggle with that worry that, that God might not hear us. But I think we, we also struggle with the worry that even if he does hear us, it doesn't matter. It doesn't make any difference. And so in this little section, John wants us to have confidence in our prayer, to approach God with real confidence. And the, and the way he does it in these verses is that he gives us, uh, in verses 14 and 15, he gives us two principles uh, of prayer. And then in verses 16 and 17, he gives us one example practice, a practical example of confident prayer. And I think that's how this little section works. So first, two principles uh, of prayer. Verse 14, the first thing I want you to see is that we can have confidence. Why? Because he hears us. He hears us. Um, it's at the end there of the last two words of verse 14. God hears us. Now, something I've always admired about, I haven't said this to Ruth, but uh, something I've always admired about her family uh, is that her mum and dad have trained their children really well not to interrupt. It's a lesson that I'm slowly still learning, unfortunately. Uh, and it's something I would love to nurture in our little family. Uh, they've trained their, they train their children not to interrupt. And that means they've created an environment in their family that whether you're young or old, your voice will be heard. Your voice will be heard. And when you stop and think about it, that's actually a remarkably kind thing, isn't it? Because it's a mark of real respect. 
your opinion, your observation, your question. It matters. It matters. And so I'm going to give the time to hear it. I'm going to give you a a hearing. Um, And what we're told here in this little section is that God gives us the same wonderful privilege and respect. He gives us a hearing. And because he hears us, um, we can be confident that he can answer us. Um, because when we come to God, we don't just, it's not just like being heard by a friend or family member or even a counselor, someone who's a sympathetic ear, um, who can maybe sympathize with us, but often is just unable to do anything about our request or concern. We come, however, to the God of the universe, the creator of all things. And so he is both willing to hear us, but also he's able to answer us. And that's the second little principle that John has here for us. Not only does God hear us, but he answers us. He answers us. When we come to him in prayer, we know that he hears us. And whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. He is willing and he's able to answer our prayers. Uh, But, but, uh, there's a little phrase in the middle uh, of these two verses that's a bit like, if we're totally honest, uh, the fly in the ointment, the the nagging concern uh, as we think of God being able uh, and willing to answer our prayers. It's that little phrase, according to his will, isn't it? And at least as I read that, I feel oh, that just sort of spoils it, doesn't it? just sort of spoils it. Come to God. He will hear you. Pour out your heart to him. He will answer. Terms and conditions apply. Okay? It's just, oh, just kind of ruins it a little bit, doesn't it? That's the way I kind of feel as I read that. Um, nevertheless, I think even the fact that we feel like that that, that shows that actually we've got some wrong assumptions when we come to think about prayer often, at least I do. Often we think that the greatest thing about prayer is the what that I get out of it. Whereas John wants to show us that the greatest thing about prayer is the who that you get access to. Right? I think that's the big point. And If you think about a a loving God that you have access to, he's not, any good father is never going to say, I will answer, and as a father of a an eight-year-old, it would never be wise for me to say, ask of me whatever you want, and you'll always get the answer yes. I think that's, that's a recipe for disaster, isn't it? That's a recipe for disaster. I came across this little story on Facebook. Uh, Perhaps you came across it as well. Poking fun uh, at uh, some of the American gun lobby. And it showed a picture of a a father and a little six-year-old girl. And two speech bubbles. And one speech bubble from the little girl said, Dad, why didn't you get me uh, the point, uh, the the 45 Magnum uh, with the armor-piercing rounds for my birthday this year? Uh, And the dad's little speech bubble says... Oh, honey, you know you're too young for that. Wait until you're 10. 
wait until you're 10. Um, and we kind of recognize that would be grossly, horribly, horrifically irresponsible to give a 10-year-old a loaded gun. But actually, when you stop and think about it, if God was to answer all our prayers positively, irrespective of whether they are good for us, that would be the definition of child abuse, wouldn't it? That would be damaging for us. That would, actually, he wouldn't be a good father if he did that. Good fathers always reserve the right uh, to say no. And when you stop and think about it, um, if you uh, think back to some of the, the, the requests you made in the past, some of the things you pleaded with the Lord for in the past, to go to that school, to go to that college or university, to get into that job, to have that person as your partner, and you prayed earnestly, passionately for it, and now, with the benefit of hindsight, you know that that would have been bad for you. You know that. We've all had that experience. God is no different. He is a good father, uh, and he always reserves the right to say no. In fact, Tim Keller puts it like this, God will always answer your prayers, always, always, always answer. Uh, He will either give you what you want, or he will give you what you would have asked for if you knew all that he knows. I think that's a very good definition. He will give you what you want, or he will give you what you would have asked for if you had known everything that he knows. And so he is a loving father who always answers every prayer. His timing may not be our timing. His answer may not be what we would expect or demand. And he sometimes answers negatively. Why? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. And so John wants you to come away from this little section with great encouragement. He hears and he answers and he always answers with things that are the best for you. The best for you. Um, Again, the big principle here, um, however, is that John wants you to be filled with confidence but also joy and wonder. Not because of what you get out of prayer but of who you get access to. Uh, a friend of mine had uh, bought a, a product, let's call it a product, a, a piece of technology from a major company that shares its name with a common fruit, okay? Uh, and so he bought this piece of kit, uh, but it, it didn't work. It didn't work. And he spent effectively six months being bounced around from one genius to another escalation team, um, And in the end, after six months, effectively what this company said to him is, I'm so sorry, it doesn't work. It should, but it doesn't. And we can't help you. We hope you buy some of our products at some other time. Well, a couple of weeks after he got that sort of definitive final answer that they couldn't help him, a friend sent him a link to a website, and on the website there was the direct email address uh, of the the European manager and director of operations for this company. And he thought, what's the harm? And he sent an email, and he shared his story, shared his complaint, um, within an hour, within an hour of that email been sent, uh, his PA was in contact. Within a day, his personal SAS tech team were in touch with him on the phone 
And within a week, his, his problem was completely sorted. Why did I tell you that story? Why did I tell you that story? I tell you that story quite simply because when you pray, you never get bounced around the complaints department of heaven. You never have to deal with a call center saying, your prayer is really important to us, if you please hold. Um, never have to deal with that. What, the amazing thing, the amazing thing that John wants you to see here is that when you close your eyes, if you're at someone who's put their trust in the Lord Jesus, when you close your eyes and say your prayer to God, your words are heard in the throne room of heaven. And that God is interested in every word you have to say. Isn't that an amazing thought? He's interested in every word you have to say. And he will answer in a way that is for your good. What a privilege John wants us to, to enjoy. That um, John doesn't want us to see prayer as this drudgery. Oh, it's like a ritual I've got to do in the morning or God will be ticked off with me. Uh, so I better pray. And we rattle through our list of requests. Now God wants us to understand the privilege that we have. That we can talk to the creator of the universe. We can unburden our heart before him. We can ask for his help and his guidance and his strength. And he will answer. And he will answer. Two principles. God hears and he answers. And so we should be confident to approach God in prayer. But then in verses 16 and 17, we come to what is, in, in fairness, a, a very tricky example of confident prayer. Here's the practice. Here's what it might look like to pray confidently then to God. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. Okay, fair enough. Um, now, I refer to those uh, who sin, whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin, sin that does lead to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is a sin that does not lead to death. So this is the prayer when you see a fellow Christian beginning to wander away from the faith, uh, beginning to sin in obvious ways that are dishonoring to God, damaging for them and for other people. What should you do? You should pray for them. That's, that's our duty and an expression of our love for one another. We're to pray. Uh, however, John's words do get a bit confusing, if we're honest, don't we? Uh, uh, aren't they? John seems to be saying at first glance that there's two kinds of sin. There's two kinds of sin. Um, there's the sin that doesn't lead to death and sin that does lead to death. It sounds like John is saying, well, there's, there's, there's really bad sin. And then there's not so bad sin. Uh, if you commit a not so bad sin, um, when you pray, well, the work of Jesus on the cross is enough to atone and, and to forgive you for that. So that's great. But if you commit a sin that leads to death, a really bad sin, then actually what Jesus did on the cross is, is not enough to atone for you. That seems to be the way, uh, as at first glance, what John is saying. And some people certainly have read it in that way. But I want to suggest that if you think John is giving you two kinds of sin, 
uh, a sin that leads to death, an unforgivable sin, uh, and uh, a sin that's not so bad that the cross can atone for, uh, I want to suggest that 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 is contradictory to what is written in the rest of the New Testament. But more than that, it's contradictory to what John has already said within this book. Back in uh, chapter 1, verse 9, we read these words. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. There's no caveats there. There's no, oh, well, except for that kind of really bad sin. Or he goes on, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. John seems to be going out of his way to stress that anyone, anyone who sins in any way, if they come to the Lord Jesus, they can be forgiven. There is nothing off the table. There's nothing wonderfully, and we can all breathe a sigh of relief because of this this morning, there's no one here who has sinned so badly that they cannot be forgiven. No one, no matter what you've done. So what is John talking about? Well, I think John is talking about not so much two different kinds of sin, but two different kinds of sinner. Two different kinds of sinner. And at the end of the day, there's only two kinds of sinner. There are those who finally, permanently reject Jesus. And then there's all the rest of us. That's, that's the two kinds of sinner. Um, and the reason why John is saying that, because if... And he's argued this all the way through the letter and his gospel. That Jesus is the only one, the only one who can bring forgiveness. He is the only one who can deal with the problem of our sin. uh, Which he did on the cross by taking the penalty for us. And he's the only one who can give us the hope of eternal life. And so ultimately, if you reject him, you reject the only cure there is. So think for a moment uh, that someone discovers, um, let's hope this happens, someone discovers a cure for cancer. A cure for cancer. And it's, it's simply a little pink pill. If, you, if you're diagnosed with cancer of any kind, of any kind, you simply go to the doctor, you get prescribed this little pink pill and you take one a day for the rest of your life cured. But imagine someone who's a friend of yours who who, uh, is diagnosed with cancer, um, but they are absolutely committed to only taking herbal remedies. That's, That's their thing. And so they refuse to take the pink pill. Well, you can plead all you want for them to see the doctor, but ultimately the doctor cannot help them if they refuse to take the pink pill. Isn't that right? The doctor cannot help them if they refuse to take the pink pill. Well, in that little illustration, the parallel is that God the Father is the doctor. Jesus is the pink pill. But if you refuse to take him, that will lead to death. That will lead to death. And so the sin that doesn't lead to death is any sin except rejection of Jesus. It's any sin except rejection of Jesus. We can be forgiven our sexual sins. We can be forgiven our sins of violent anger. 
uh, we can be forgiven uh, the sins of greed and envy and gluttony and pride and racism and even murder. We can be forgiven all those things. But the only thing that you cannot be forgiven for is the sin of rejecting Jesus. Because that will cut you off from the only cure that there is. That will cut you off from the only cure that there is. And so here's the application John has for us. Is if you see a sinner begin to wa- or a, 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 a saint who is also a sinner. Because we're always both, aren't we? We're always saint and sinner in this life. Uh, if you see a brother or sister begin to wander off in observable ways. If you see me sin in obvious ways. I sin all the time in my thoughts, but if you see me sin in some observable way, then John wants to say to you, it is your duty to pray for me. It's your duty to pray for me. Because you cannot know, you cannot know, is that a symptom of my ultimate rejection of Jesus? Or is it just my stumble, my lapse as a Christian? You can't know that, so your duty is to pray for me. And the wonderful thing here is that prayer doesn't just change us. It does do that. But pray, prayer actually changes circumstances. God has set up the universe so that he will, answer, he will restore wandering Christians using the means of prayer. We have a wonderful responsibility that we are called to exercise. God hears and will answer that prayer. That's a long point. We've spent a long time there. But John wants us to be confident as we head off into an uncertain world. He wants to be, us to be confident that we can approach God and he will hear uh, and he will answer. Secondly, very quickly, uh, we can have confidence that Christ will keep us safe. We can be confident that Christ will keep us safe. Verse 18 We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe. The evil one cannot harm him. Again, tricky, tricky verse here. Uh, We've got to get our thinking caps on for a moment. Um, John is, again, not saying, he's not saying, genuine Christians never sin anymore. That is not what he's saying. Again, that would contradict what he's already said in the letter. Uh, So in chapter 1, verse 8, John has written, uh, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Uh, I think back to secondary school. I had a maths teacher who had a bee in his bonnet about chewing gum. He absolutely loathed anyone chewing chewing gum. Uh, and if he caught you chewing chewing gum, he would go and make a big, this, big, this big drama about it. He would grab the waste paper basket beside his desk and he would walk down and put it under your nose. And he would say, spit it out. You can't chew chewing gum in my classroom. Now, at one level, that statement is nonsense, isn't it? I'm doing it right now. It's possible for me to chew chewing gum in your classroom. I'm, I'm doing it. But that's not what he was saying. He was not saying it is impossible to chew chewing gum in my classroom. When he says that phrase, you can't chew chewing gum in my classroom, he is saying it is disrespectful and inappropriate for you to chew chewing gum in my classroom. John, when he says, verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. 
He's not saying it is impossible for a Christian to sin anymore. Clearly, he's not saying that. Sadly, we all slip up uh, on a regular basis. He is not saying Christians are sinlessly perfect. But he is saying it is inappropriate for us to continue to sin willfully in the same way we always did. Because if you've come to understand what Jesus has done for you, if you've come to understand his kindness and grace and the extent of his sacrifice to forgive you, then that should begin to change you. And Christians should be those who want to live to please the Lord Jesus in the way that we live. That should be our new, we have a new direction and a new desire in our hearts. A new direction and a new desire. We should not just be willing to continue living the way we've always lived. And in fact, this new direction, new desire can actually create some problems because often, and this has been the experience of many, many Christians, uh, perhaps it's your experience as well, that when you become a Christian, you actually become more aware of your own sinfulness and failure than maybe you were living in a way that your conscience wasn't troubled before and now you're doing similar things, but you're troubled by that. Um, Often it's been said that being a Christian sometimes feels like you're, you're swimming and you're struggling, thrashing in the water, trying to keep your head above the, the surface and there are chains on you dragging you down. That's often what it feels like being a Christian. I'm still struggling with sin and it's dragging me down and my fear is that my sin actually might drag me away from the Lord Jesus and drag me all the way down to hell. Well, John is saying, you need not be afraid. Yes, you will struggle. Yes, your faith might be fragile. Yes, you will constantly stumble in this life. But you need not be afraid. Why? Verse 18, the one who is born of God, there a reference clearly to the Lord Jesus, the unique Son of God, keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. Yes, the evil one will tempt and attack you, but ultimately he is not strong enough to drag you away from Jesus. And that means wonderfully that that making it to the end of the Christian life, making it safely to heaven, does not depend ultimately on my determination, on my moral strength. Wonderfully, the promise here is that Jesus is the one who will hold on to me Making it to heaven, it doesn't depend on my grip of my faith, but it depends on Jesus' grip of me. I think that's a wonderfully encouraging thought. We should have confidence that Christ will keep us safe. Lastly, lastly, we should have confidence that we know the true God. Confidence that we know the true God. It's quite a common view today that if you say... I know that I'm forgiven and I know I'm going to heaven. Some people might actually get angry if they hear you say that because they might say, how dare you say that? How dare you say that? What sort of inflated opinion of yourself do you have? How arrogant are you to think? How presumptuous are you to assume that God will accept you into heaven? 
You get the logic? But again, that betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of the Christian faith. Because when a Christian says, I know the truth about God, when a Christian says, I know the truth about God, they are not saying, they are not saying, look at me. I've been thinking about God for a bit. And here's what I've worked out. uh, And here's now what I believe about God. And the rest of you are all wrong. That's not what a Christian is saying. Ultimately, a Christian is saying, the truth has got a hold of me. The truth has got a hold of me. I came to have the privilege of reading some of the eyewitness testimony to the person of Jesus, God in the flesh, who came in real history, who came in flesh and blood, who proved, although he was a man, completely proved that he was also God with the teaching that he gave, the miracles he performed, and ultimately his resurrection. And the Holy Spirit has opened my eyes to see my need for him. The truth has pursued me. It's not that I have worked it out. This is not an arrogant claim for a Christian. A Christian is saying wonderfully they've had their eyes opened to the truth and that the truth has pursued them, not that they have worked out the truth. And similarly, when a Christian says, I I know I'm going to heaven, that is not an arrogant claim. A Christian is not saying, I have earned my way into God's good books. I have piled up enough good deeds to outweigh the bad deeds on the scales of, uh, of heaven that he'll let me in. No, no, that's not what a Christian is saying. A Christian is saying when they claim that they know God and are going to heaven, they claim that they have come to understand that the Lord Jesus has been good enough to suffer and die for me, to take my penalty that my failure deserved on the cross. And when I asked for his forgiveness and put my trust in him, I have been given freely a relationship with God that begins now and lasts forever. And that's why John can say, verse 20, we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Because we have come to understand who Jesus is, what he came to do, the truth is we can know, confidently know, the truth about God, who he really is, what he's really like, and what he has done for me. And it's not just that we can know true facts about God. Look at the end of verse 20. Uh, And we are in him who is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Through putting your trust in the Lord Jesus, you can not just know facts about God, you can know God personally. You can know God and be known and accepted by him because of what Christ has done. We can be confident, we can be confident that we're not talking about fairy tales. This is not just wishful thinking because Jesus came in real history, demonstrated who he was to eyewitnesses, rose again. And the truth of these things, uh, we've come to understand them through the work of the Holy Spirit. We can confidently know who God is uh, and what he is like.
And so John ends this book with this one little application. Uh, He says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, it does feel like a bit of a random PS at the end of the letter, doesn't it? Um, He certainly hasn't mentioned idols anywhere else in the book before. Uh, Why why bring it up now at the very, very end? Um, But I think what John is talking about, although he is writing to Christians uh, who lived in a city where there was lots of statues to other gods, I don't actually think that's what he has in mind, the statues of other gods. I think in light of everything he said in the book, I think what he has in mind is false notions about Jesus. False notions about Jesus. You see, it's possible that um, what, what the false teachers were actually doing um, is that you can think about Jesus in ways that are not true. You can hear some of his demanding comments and just sort of filter them out. Uh, hear some of his exclusive claims and find them, oh, it's a bit awkward to say stuff like that in our culture. We'll just filter that out. And to be left with the Jesus of your imagination rather than the real Jesus of history and the Bible, that is a very real possibility for all of us, that we filter out the challenges, the demands, the exclusive claims, and the ethics that we find uncomfortable. Well, John is warning us right at the end of this book that if you do that, you're not just gaining a different perspective uh, that will enrich you about Jesus. You're actually swapping out the true Jesus, the Jesus of the apostles, uh, the, the, the Bible and history, with the Jesus of your own imagination. An idol, an idol, a self-made God. John wants us to be very careful never to do that, never to do that. Yes, Jesus says some remarkably demanding things. Yes, he makes some exclusive claims. And we're not free to let go of those. But wonderfully, if we hold on to the Jesus of the apostles, the Jesus of real history, what you will have, what you'll, what you'll have is confidence, confidence to come before God in prayer confidence that that Jesus will keep you safe. Confidence that through that Jesus, you can know the real God and be confident in your relationship with him. Let me pray.